And welcome back to Making the Scene. I am your host, Eric Sipple, and I'm returned for part two of a two-part series, which is the only time we're doing this this season on Making the Scene. We are back for another Guillermo del Toro film. And today, I am joined by Katie Chandler, who has chosen today's scene. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Awesome. It's awesome to have you. Um, why don't you tell the viewers a little bit about yourself? You are you are a person of many talents, both an author and an excellent critic. So um, tell the uh, audience about, about yourself. Well, well thank you. Um, I am an author. I do write uh, mostly fiction. I write a, a, a bunch of uh, mystery and urban fantasy and regular fantasy as well. Um, and and that fantasy is part of what what leads me into uh, this movie in particular and Del Toro in general. Um, in addition to writing, I also conduct a blog with my uh, evil twin or good twin, depending on the day. We discuss television shows, specifically Haven, Grimm, and Sleepy Hollow. We've also discussed Person of Interest, and we analyze those in meticulous details, scene by scene, and to at some points frame by frame. You can find that at Murderboarding, or also formally known as Unspooling Fiction, more formally. And we are at murderboarding.blogspot.com. Definitely check that out. Um, it's a fantastic deconstruction of episode by episode. It's I, I honestly don't know if there's anything I've seen like it online. It's it's great. So definitely check out murder, Murderboarding, and also make sure you check out Black Ice, which is um, her short story collection. I guess mostly short stories, is it? Mostly short stories, yeah. Yeah. One longer story. That's right, yes. There's like more of a novella length um, piece as well. It's it's a great urban fantasy detective mix, and um, you should definitely check it out. It's on Lulu, right? That's where it's available? It is on Lulu, yes. Awesome, awesome. Go and read it. Um, t- today we are going to be looking at Pan's Labyrinth, which is Del Toro's, um, I guess, probably his most masterful pure horror movie Def- definitely his most critically acclaimed and i think also uh i believe he refers to it as a watershed moment definitely the moment when he became more taken seriously sad to say as a director yeah up until then he had he had struggled between because there's really you know we this is exciting to me this series because there's kind of two del toros at this and, and there's the hollywood del toro who is uh, very good at doing comic book style action movies Mm -hmm. and and then there's the sort of more art horror director del toro and i love that both he's able to do both and he switches between them at will and um so first we discussed last week we discussed uh, pacific rim with anna williams who is kitty's partner in crime um and we got to talk about the hollywood del toro and now we're going to get to talk about the the art house horror director who um, makes not not much scares me when I watch movies, but um, I am I get legitimately creeped out in scenes when Del Toro really goes full horror, which is which is rare. Yeah, he he is he is very good. Um, I think part of that comes from his background. Uh, I've been reading his notebooks, and he definitely had a childhood fascination with horror, and and a lot of it is probably also just innate how he sees the world. Yeah, he he his horror tends to be rooted in very real world situations, which is why it tends to work so well. Um, and so, before we get into the scene in, in the movie any further, I just want to give some technical credits for this. Um, this is written and directed by Del Toro. Its editor is, and I hope I don't mispronounce his name, Bernat Villaplana is the editor, um, who I found out today edited two of scenes from, sorry, two episodes from Penny Dreadful, which is. Not surprising at all. They picked him up for that because he knows his stuff. And the cinematographer is his is Del Toro's longtime collaborator, Guillermo Navarro, who worked with him on pretty much everything, I think. And uh, Villa Plan is actually another longtime collaborator. Interestingly, Pacific Rim is, I think, his only movie since Hellboy 2, or maybe since this one, that Del Toro hasn't had him on as editor. So the rare a rare change in, um, in uh, personnel on that one. But... Um, Either way, that is our technical cast for this film. So, uh, Katie, tell us what scene we have chosen today and, and why. What, why the scene? 
All right. This scene is probably one of the more memorable, or at least one of the more talked about that I've heard. This is the pale man scene, the second of the three tasks that Ophelia has to has to carry out in order to regain her proper place and take her... Okay, there's there's two motivations here. One is to regain her proper place, but the other is also to take her family somewhere safe. So there there's a there's a lot of um, there's a little of that duality in how she behaves also in in this scene. And this scene uh, being the middle of the of the three tasks is also the one where things start to go wrong. Um, in a way, it's it's a microcosm of not the plot of the whole movie, but definitely the atmosphere because we start off with a lot of very traditional fairy tale elements and then you go into a, a, a very traditional fairy tale challenge but a lot of how she behaves and what she does is also rooted in her real life is she's she's starving she's poor she's got a feast laid before her and she behaves the way any starving poor girl would do this scene really kind of exemplifies that this might be the most accurate representation of fairy tale storytelling in film it, to me. I'm trying to think if there's anything that matches this, but there's something really elemental about fairy tales, the real source of fairy tales that this movie captures that movies tend to gloss over. It, I think that, I think some of that has to do with, with Del Toro, but I think a lot of that also has to do with, there's a, a very uh, Hispanic Latino approach to magical realism that, that the culture is famous for. Uh, you see with uh, Allende, Isabel Allende, uh, an author, and um, I'm not sure what, she ha- what much she has to do with her movies, but some of her books have been made into movies. You see it a bit with Pedro Almodovar, who's a, a famous Spanish um, director. But you see a, a lot of it is simply the, the magical realism where the magic and the fantasy is taken for granted as part of normal life. And so when you have that perspective, you can bring to life in a, in a much more visceral way a lot of the fairy tales that, that well, in general, uh, the Americas share, but also uh, just the themes. Definitely. And, and what's, what's interesting about this is that one of the reasons I think it captures fairy tale storytelling so well definitely is a big part is, is the way it integrates magic into the world. The other side, I think that an American... Um, filmmaking when it comes to fairy tales tends to miss this is that american fairy tale logic even when they understand the roots of poverty that are a big part of a lot of fairy tale storytelling tend to gloss over the it in a way that makes it not feel real and this there's a real despair to ophelia's life in this that makes the escape into fairy tale logic a lot more potent than you get in a lot of attempts when when I don't know, there's this sort of the Disneyland poverty that happens in American fairy tale mm-hmm. storytelling. Well, even the, even the Dickens, please, sir, might I have more? It's very romanticized. Like this is a noble suffering we're going through, right? As opposed to you know, this is because there's actually you know, th- it's worth mentioning that there's another um, Spanish Civil War set Del Toro horror movie, which is Devil's Backbone, and I, I it's really worth watching that as a pairing with this movie because both deal with um the the situation in the country at the time which was not a happy time in spain no it was not oh another interesting thing actually about the placement of this scene in the movie is is that we have the fairy tale feast that she's being tempted by after the scene where well after one after a scene where you see the feast that the captain's laying out for everybody but also you can contrast that with the following scene where they're being given uh, this is the daily bread of Franco Spain this is your food this is what we are giving you so this is all you will eat and if we don't give it to you you don't eat so you have the contrast between the lushness of the feast the the poverty of Ophelia's life and then she's and then she's catapulted back into or not really back into she didn't really attend the first feast so she's catapulted into this feast where there's a a suckling animal and fruit which she wouldn't have seen much of fresh fruit right there and it's just it's it's no it's no wonder she succumbs really because this is this is a huge huge deal for her this is something she might never have seen in her life so it is fantastical it is fairy tale to her 
Absolutely, yeah. It's the the ma- part of the magic is the the feast. It's not just that there's a creepy guy with eyeballs slots in his hand and fairies. There's there the, the entire world is filled with with things that she's not being given access to in her real life. Um, and and oh, so so I guess I should say the 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 second task that she has been tasked with here is to retrieve a dagger. Correct. That's what she's mm-hmm. she's here for. Yeah. And, yep. and and she uses the uh, this scene opens actually with the I love that this is I, this is one of the little details I love the chalk that opens the door to the fairy world um, but for a certain amount of time thus getting us an hourglass yep. to count down our time yep it's it's always it's always a limited time window and I mean the chalk to an extent it, it's a lesser seen thing in fiction but it also when you're dealing with a movie it really helps you can see the door you see the, the person make the door and. And also just the act of drawing, drawing your um, symbols and drawing, drawing your magic is an old one. So you get chalk and you get the door and then you get the hourglass. It's, inter- also, also, it's also interesting to note that this is all very powdery material. It's all easily blown away. So she could just as easily get stuck there or locked out. Yeah, there's there's a it feels like a real threat that that she could get stuck there, which it has to because this is a separate world, and that's something else that I feel doesn't always get sold. And and one of the things, so there's something about the transition to the scene that I really like, and and one aspect is the color transition, definitely, which is which is the kind of level that you occasionally you see a lot of in American stuff um, and lesser directors is a, a severe color difference, which we do get here. It's very blue and monochrome and green in her world and her room and then very red and orange in this world. But what I really love about the color design, as soon as you walk in, it's not just a color difference. There's this organic, like esophageal feel to the tunnel. As soon as she walks into it, it's not just red. It feels kind of fleshy. Yeah, it, it does. I actually, I, I noticed that myself. Um, the, it, it's, it's like an, it's like you're in an internal organ somehow um you say esophagus i was actually thinking heart because you start out with the frog who could be the bowels and then you move up to the heart and then at the last you move up to the head but it it is it it just we both landed on internal organs because that really looks like the magic school bus going down the you know the pipe somewhere (laughs) it's it's what i love about it is it's it's it would have been easy to go so far in that direction it slaps you in the face, but the rest of it are, is like stone columns and the checkerboard floor. So there's there's a building aspect to it, too. It's just behind that. Like, behind that facade is this... It, it, the wall is just really disturbing, honestly. Once you notice the wall, it's really creepy. It's like a Diablo set. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is. It totally is. And I, and I, I love that it gives an immediate difference and it's like i said it's not just the color and in fact the other thing about the color that i like is that there tends to be this blue beige difference and right now we have in most color correction in movies Mm. and i like that that ophelia's dress is actually greenish i thought it was blue at first but it's this really like light green color that that stands out differently Against the red, than going for the normal blue. I, I'm, I'm a fan of the color choice in her outfit. Yeah, she 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 seems to have a lot of of sort of blue green, but also kind of blue brown earthy, more serene tones, I guess, in yes. her, in her outfits. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, and overall, the the color design in the scene is great. I mean, it even goes down to the the foods. You know, you have like a red jelly and the. The fruits and the they're 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 they all kind of go that continuum from red to violet on mm-hmm. that on that table. I mean, you've got you've got red grapes, you've got oranges, and then you've got the suckling thing that's glazed red. There and for all that it could, there could be a lot of greenery on the table. There's a lot of green food out there. <laughs> there's none of it. There's almost none of it. There might be a sprig of parsley somewhere, but there's just. It's all oranges and grapes, and it could there could be a pomegranate in there, which yeah. wouldn't be out of place. No, it would definitely not be at all. And and I do, yeah. You know, this is one of those great fairy tale things of the don't eat. You know, the don't eat rule pops up in about, yep. and and I and it's one of those things that pops up in all kinds of different contexts. There's there's always the danger of indulging yourself in mm-hmm. in the world of magic, and that and that tends to cross boundaries. Like you know, the pomegranate from Greece, um, from God. Demeter and um, Persephone. Jeez, I yes. can't remember names. Um, and then all the way through um, more more medieval folk tales like um, Hansel and Gretel and things of that nature. Yeah. 
And and in a way, it's especially cruel for her because, or at least um, in in Del Toro's notebooks, he mentions one line being being left on the cutting room floor that he wishes he'd put in that says that she went to bed without supper. She hadn't eaten all day. So so this whole stricture of don't eat is particularly cruel to her. And it, that's really interesting. And I. I I, you know, it's in, the, I, the movie doesn't need it, but I can see why he's concerned that it's too bad it's not there to really drive home that Ophelia is not stupid in eating mm-hmm. food here. This is not this is not her being foolish. It's just it's a terrible, terrible trial to put her through. It's it's a strong, it, it's a strong. It's not it's not a magical compulsion either, which is actually would be my preference for leaving it in. Is that this isn't a magical compulsion? This is a human compulsion. Uh, the other reason, actually, I kind of wish he'd put it in is because the, the tests, you start out with go in this cave and trick a frog. You go to sneak past this evil thing and, and get an item. And then you, you scale all the way up to, here, kill something. And so if, I think if he'd put it in, there would have been a little bit more obvious in the scaling. But, you know, on the other hand, leaving it out didn't do any too much harm, I don't think, either. It, it drives the point home more than it changes the nature of the scene, you know, you can, there, those, those reads I feel like are still there that you just have to work a little harder yeah. for them. The first time through, it's easy probably to think, oh, what the hell is she doing? Why is she picking up grapes? She was told yeah. not to do this, but any, any, any amount of thinking on the scene really gets across what's going on there. Yeah. Um, there's some other great production design elements in this room. I love the mural on the dome. I love that there's a dome, first of all, not only is there like a, these, like this mural painting, but it's this dome right above the pale man's head, and there is some creepy artwork there. Yeah, it's just it, it, the tr- the traditional style paintings where where he's you know clearly stabbing and, and eating children, and then you see the pile of shoes on the floor, and you know this isn't you know hyperbole. This is something he actually does. That pile of shoes creeps me out so much, and it, it it's amazing that I don't know if it's in a shot before they have the close up of it or not. But I don't notice it until right after they cut away from the dome and they go to that shot of the shoes and it's in your face when you're yeah. like, oh, my God, there's a pile of kids shoes. Yeah, I believe it is. I believe it is. But I'm, I wouldn't say for certain without having it right paused in front of me. And, and shoes are shoes are always really good symbolism, partially because they're just expensive up until very, very recently. They were expensive and you needed a good pair of shoes. They were good foot protection, but also because it's a very good visual for this many children died here. I mean, you could, you could do clothes, you could do, I don't know, fingers, but it, it kind of blends together after a while. Shoes don't as much visually speaking. Definitely. In fact, I've, I've just rewound a little bit just to see what the, then they are when she first walks in and you kind of can see the mural, but not what it is in the background. There are little piles of shoes all around, but from far away, it's really, they just look like piles. They don't look like piles of anything in particular. And what I find interesting about this visual is that it looks a lot like they, in Blade Two. They they go into these catacombs, um, and there are these pile of like bones, but the bones look so rotted away that they barely look substantial as bones anymore. And from far away, that's what these piles of shoes look like. They look like the piles of bones in the catacombs in Blade Two, which gives them a skeletal look to me. Yeah, they're yeah. There, it's 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 interesting because you don't know what they are. There's just sort of piles, and it kind of passes by your eyes, and then you see. Yeah, in his notebooks, he has. It, it looks like he goes back and forth between movies. He's got notes for uh, Hellboy and Hellboy Two in in the Pan's Labyrinth notes. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was a thing that he reused later, or just like the look of, and is like, okay, I'll keep this in case it becomes handy later. Here, here's a good way to creep people out. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and apparently, like the that like sort of like pile of of desiccated things is. And I, I always mispronounce this word. In fact, Penny Dreadful is the word that first time I heard it pronounced right. Grand Gui? Grand Guignol. Guignol. Grand Guignol. That's, that look is kind of part of that tradition. Um, that's sort of like when you look at like some of the older like Grand Guignol horror films, like the Hammer horror films that kind of traipsed yeah. in that look. Um, that's a look that goes with that. Which, which again, like here's Del Toro mashing up, you know, his, his fairy tale ideas with also this rich tradition of horror imagery, of you know, film horror imagery specifically. Yeah, yeah. and a, and a lot of that is is the kind of stuff he would have grown up on. So it makes sense that it pops up now and again in his work. Here, this scared me as a child. Now I can go scare all of you. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so and 
So the the other the other thing that um, is interesting in this is that you know there's motivation to the lighting, which is the fire. It's all it's all very firelight mm, in yes. here. There's the there's the very warm hearth. Everything is so wrong in this scene because it all looks so warm and inviting. Um, everything's so cool in her world, and it, and this red is sort of and it's the kind of thing with that wall where it's a little disturbing when you really look at it, but on the outside, it's kind of an inviting place. Yeah. Well, it has to be, otherwise you can't tempt in your victims. <laughs> Totally. And then, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's the whole fairy tale thing. Here is something that looks wholesome. It's corrupt inside. You bite into the cake and blood's going to spurt out, <laughs> which actually is probably a more apt analogy considering the, the whole uh, red inside, uh, inside of tan thing we've got going here. Totally. Totally. Um, and then, and which brings us to the, the keyhole sequence where she actually has to open one of the three things which first of all though i love that there's very subtle different designs to each of the doors so, and have, have you noticed that the the one that that she has to open is the plainest one as well i mean the, the, there's one that's got a kind of an ornate grill work and there's one that's painted white and then there's just a plain door and that's the one she she decides no it's this one I have a question about what you think about this, actually, that, which I think is interesting. The fairy tells her which one to open, and and it's wrong. And what what's going on there to you? Why why is the fairy wrong? Is I th- what's going on? I think I'm not entirely sure what he intended, but the way I see this is that is is that this is sort of representative of where her goals and the stated goals uh, keeping keeping in mind stated goals different from actual goals but the stated goals of the fawn and uh the the fairies diverge and and her goal is and and again her goal isn't just what they're holding out of her is like you you're a princess you must come back home her goal is safety and security for herself and her family so what she's looking at is something more real and it's the same thing later on when she's challenged. It's like, okay, here, in order to assume your proper place on the throne, you have to kill someone. She's like, no, this is, this is contravening my goal. I don't want to kill anyone. I just want my people to be safe. And I, I kind of think that's what's going on is the fairy saying, no, we must do this, and then you will go be a princess. And she's saying, no, I, I must do this. This is, this is what I actually have to do. Oh I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because basically what what's happening here is it's, the, it's a a clear sign of her instinct being being truer than than the dictates she's getting. Yeah, from and the then of the fairies. Yeah, and then you see that again later on when, when even the fawn says so. It says, uh, you know, you all you had to do was was say, protect uh, what is yours, and now we will go, or at least. Briefly, that's what it says. <laughs> um, right. oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just thinking right before she gets shot. So, you know, what the fawn says and what the story says, again, might be a little different. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, one of the other things about the design of this door thing that is is interesting that I actually missed until I had it paused on the screen while we're talking. It's four sets of eyes which make up three different faces around the the doors each door is a mouth but depending on which two eyes you're looking at it's three different faces for each door yeah it, he has a lot of of things with eyes and faces in, in this in this movie and in this particular scene there's there's a lot of uh, yeah, of i mean the the pale man has no eyes but a mouth uh, apparently an early version of the movie had had a deaf mute involved so there's there's a lot of things circulating around eyes and faces and what we see and hear and how we speak I'm not entirely sure what he's getting at there except possibly the uh, either the horror or the sublime of of having different different views different perspectives or different ways of speaking and del toro tends to like playing with this this eye thing, especially, it, this tends to go out into his other movies. I mean, the, the, um, I think it's the Angel of Death in Hellboy Two, mm, with the wings and eyes. Yeah, yeah, with the, yep. the, there's that as well. He, he, that seems to be a trope. Uh, I don't want to say a trope, but a, but a, a visual, um, image that he continually comes back to. He likes playing yeah. with eyes in the wrong places a lot. <laughs> motif, yeah. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Motif, yeah. Oh. Yeah, he did mention at one point in, in these notebooks and in the interviews that he gives that uh, the the eyes are in the hands to to um, 
either represent or allude to the stigmata. So I think that's an, especially considering that this is a really creepy thing he's giving Christ-like imagery to. Definitely. And, and and that really, that makes a lot of sense, actually, considering the setting of, of Spain, which is a really strongly Catholic, Mm -hmm. um, country. And when, with, and actually right now with, you know, with this point in history, you have the, the, um, the king of Spain, basically the, the, the monarchy of Spain being toppled Mm -hmm. by, by these, um, by Franco and his fascist people. And so it's interesting. It actually makes a lot of sense. That mashup of, of, um, Catholic imagery of Christ imagery with horror really goes along with what's going on in the, in the setting. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when, slightly digressing here, but um, when my, when my parents' family was, lived in Spain at, the, at around, I don't think around this exact time, but definitely under Franco's Spain, um, it w- basically all your schooling was Catholic and you just, you went to school, you went to mass, everything was so steeped in, in the Catholic way of life. So now that uh, living in the country is also so dangerous and so deadly, it makes a lot of sense that the Catholic symbolism has also taken on some really deadly, scary-looking aspects. Yeah, yeah, it, it's that's a really interesting, really interesting visual thought there. That's wow, fascinating. Um, so, so the this kind of leads me to when she opens up. So when she opens up the door was when I noticed something about the scene when she opens up the door with the key that the sound design in the scene is kind of out of control good it's 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 so rich and so beyond any of the sound design in any of the other scenes that i've watched for making the scene so far and i noticed it here when she she pulls the key out and it makes this kind of ringing sound like like just that that metallic mm-hmm. sound like and then she puts it into the door and there's these very very serious lock noises as she's turning the key and then when she gets the knife out and she runs her finger on the blade you get that uh, a much more pronounced version of that like blade scraping on metal sound that you always get in movies mm-hmm. when a knife is pulled regardless of whether it's rubbing up against metal or not <laughs> but it's like but it's a it's so pronounced that it's different it goes beyond that you know it's this very pronounced shink kind of sound and that was when i realized that there was so no, there was so little dialogue in the scene that it was all relying all the sound comes down to the sound effects yeah, well, the sound, both the sound effects and the soundtrack, because you notice you, you've got in the background a very, uh, you've got the climactic victory music right before the pale man comes after, but you've also got the orchestral, it's um, so, almost like an epic or a saga of some kind um, to, to underscore the fact that this is one of three tasks and this, this is a very uh, hero's journey type thing that she has to do. But the sound itself... It, I think it's part. It's also part of magical realism is that you steep all of your senses into what's going on, and and working with the sound, playing with the sound is is a part of that. Definitely, it gives it gives the whole the whole scene world so much texture, and and all of the sounds are just a little more pronounced than you would usually get, so that it's which adds to that sen- sense of slight unrealism because the sounds are a little too loud, they're a little too crisp, a little too clear. Uh, because this is a heightened world that she's in. And then you've also got, one of the things I noticed about the sound is you've also got mirroring kind of sounds on her entrance and exit. On her entrance, you've got the chalk, which is actually scraping on the wall, and you, and you hear it, like you said, more pronounced. And at the end, when she's climbing out, you have her nails on the floorboards, which make a similar sound. And in the start, you've got the, once the chalk settles into the wall, you've got the sound of it, which is very much like the sand and glass as it's running out later on when she's trying to get out the door. And, and, and like you said, it's very pronounced. It's, it's very much, this is, this is something you should be paying attention to. It's, it's calling attention to, to that particular aspect of what's going on. But that's a really a really good point about the mirroring of the sounds too, because you kind of get that as well. When she first enters the world, there's this very breath air kind of noise mm-hmm. as as she's walking into the tunnel. That's sort of the first the first two sounds we get are the breath and the, the hourglass falling, which sort of the hourglass sand falling. So maybe it is maybe it is esophageal. Maybe it is it, this is the lungs and the breath of life here. Yeah, maybe you, that's a good point. Um, you, go ahead, sorry. No, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of just overall the scene. You've got a lot of wet 
living tissue sounds <laughs> as much as I hate to say it because but you've got a lot of the gooey squishy living like, you know living organism type sounds but you've also got a lot of house settling sounds which is interesting you've got the the key and the click clack of the of the gears like you said and it's just it, it's an interesting juxtaposition it, it is, and it, and they're and because they're all. What I love is that they're all sort of pronounced, but there's so many sounds happening at once that nothing jumps out at you as being like, "Listen to me, listen to me." Which is again one of those yeah. things you get with lesser filmmakers. That's like, "Look, we have a key sound. You want to hear the key sound?" But in this, you have the fairy wings over top of it. It's it's very it's very layered. It's not to it's not to hammer you over the head with the message, but to send you a message. That your that your back brain assimilates while your front brain is busy going. Oh crap! There's a guy with no eyeballs, <laughs> or you know. Oh look, she's she's doing something stupid. Oh quick, grab the dagger, and 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 while your your front mind is playing paying attention to this, and then the the sounds create this atmosphere that that ramp up your excitement and expectations without really quite necessarily knowing at that time why it's going on. It, yeah, in fact, there's this great, there's this great transitional sound right when she notices the food and really realizes what she's being tempted with, and there's these like this chime noise that that sort of transitions us, which kind of goes with that sense of now you've been because there's, there's often that bit when you when whether either by your own your own desires or by magic you're sort of ensorcelled by by the by the magic that you're around mm-hmm. and when she notices the food there's this there's this chime noise that's just a perfect a perfect transition to that and again it's one of those sounds i probably watched the scene five times before i noticed that sound it, it's, but it's yeah there. it's like it's such a it's there like as soon as it hits it it now it's like it's like an anvil of shit you know <laughs> she's she's trapped now she's got she's gotten caught yep and you know it's it, it, on the one hand, you've got the the progression of music and sound obeying all the the real, the well, not really the real, but, all, but obeying all the tropes of fairy tales. And on the other hand, it's pre- it's all very precisely placed to be distinct to this particular story. What he's doing right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's I, I'm I'm very I'm just sort of in awe of this scene. And what what makes me very much in awe of the scene was that when we first, you know, when you first chose the scene and I, and I watched it because this, we've actually been, pl- we played podcast tag on doing this <laughs> scene and we, we got all ready for, for doing it a, a couple of weeks ago. And then just a, a series of mishaps on both of our ends, uh, kept us from doing it right away. But so I had to come back to it. But that first couple times I watched it when I was preparing the first time, I couldn't analyze the scene. And I, the whole reason I did this podcast was so that I could focus on the details of a scene. And the first three times I watched it, I actually couldn't. I was so drawn in and actually so creeped out by the pale man that I couldn't analyze anything. I was just I had I just had to keep watching it until I became just desensitized enough by the pale man and how scary he is to actually see the scene for how it was working, which is the only time that's happened to me this on making the scene. I've never I have not been I've had had to work that hard to get the movie to stop trapping me in yeah, the scene. I- I'm just going to take a second and congratulate myself on a scene well chosen. Yeah, you should. Excellent, excellent work. <laughs> I think for me, I have the opposite problem. This is this is so much like the st- uh, well, not all the stuff, but a lot of the stuff I was exposed to as a child. That I'm just sort of rather than being horrified or drawn in in that aspect, I'm just sort of going da 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 da. Eat my craft macaroni and cheese. Do my oh wait, no, I'm an adult. I have to be paying attention to things now. <laughs> So just, literally, there are the the lullaby that she sings. I swear, I must have heard something like that in my childhood. I I'm pretty sure he actually wrote it for the movie, but it might well be a song. Especially since being Mexican American, he might know some of the same songs. I swear, that's something I know <laughs> from somewhere. Uh, that's something from the from like that that subconscious soup that gets made when your kit when your childhood that you pull something back out and it. It's not entirely invented so much as it is an echo of something that you heard when you were a kid. Yep. Uh, I swear if I ever – I have many questions. That's going to be in the top. Actually, that's another thing though is that that musical motif repeats itself a lot. That that lullaby motif repeats itself a lot. It is nowhere to be found in this scene. And I listened. 
Um, yeah, that's a good point. It's not it, the it's, it's, the music becomes just very atmospheric in this scene, except during the chase. Like right at the beginning, then right at the end when she's being chased, it kind of becomes mm-hmm. chase music in a sense. You know, it's it's still not making a big scene about itself, but there there isn't that kind of that that melodic tone is not is not here in this scene. It's, yeah, it's not here. I don't think it's in the frog scene, but it is definitely present at the end in the final task. And it's present throughout the movie, I think, as if to underscore that this is the, the real world. So I guess it makes a sort of sense that we don't have it in here. But it's, it's, it's an interesting delineation, the absence of, of a sound or a tune that, that tells us, rather than the presence of one, that tells us that we're in the other world now. Yeah, and and it not showing up until the end would make sense with it. That's sort of the point at which she fully crosses over. Until then, there's two worlds. Mm-hmm. And then it's not really until until the end that that her her place in this world is not there anymore. She's 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 shot, and thus thus here is not here for her anymore. So that at that point the song can transition over. But at this point in this scene, it's it's such a different place. It's such a different world. Um, and she doesn't belong here. She definitely doesn't yeah. belong here in this scene. Yeah, I mean, she has to. She has to go through doors. She has to obey a very narrow set of restrictions to get to the other side. And uh, whereas, if she if if she was truly a part of the other side, she wouldn't have to. She, you you can imagine she would just be passing through. Definitely, I I have a, a a totally sidebar question that's completely not appropriate. But does does the pale man take out his own eyeballs before he goes to sleep, or does he have some kind of fairy helper for it? Because I really think that there's a lot of work that goes into taking out your own eyeballs and putting them on a plate. He's certainly got the fingers for it, though. That's true. That's true. I mean, that's, those are some nasty fingers. I would be afraid of crushing my eyeballs in those because his fingers just kind of turn into claws. They don't. He, they don't become. They're not like. A, there's not a delineation between the fingers and the claws. It's just sort of a transition into ugly, horrible claws. <laughs> if he crushes his eyeballs, do they grow back? I, <laughs> they don't look very sturdy, but I don't know. Maybe they are. I guess they're they're uh, kind of fairy eyeballs. So oh, it gets worse. There's a there's a page in this in his notebook where apparently an early draft of the pale man had had a much more melted clay face looking face. It's this is kind of horrific. The design of him is is just pure del Toro movie horror. Like the, the, in almost every one of his movies, there is some thing, some creature that is just. I, I, I every single time he does this to me, where it's like it's his memorable image, and it is almost always Doug Jones behind the mask, giving his physicality to it. So it's not just the makeup; it's always this. There are always these really well performed well-acted thing, so it's not just that he has this creepy melted face and an eyeball in his hand, but he's stumbling around and it's opening the, yeah, his mouth. Yeah, the, the herky-jerky... I mean, people have achieved that kind of herky-jerky movement through careful editing, or, or what do you call it, the flash step? Yeah. But he's just doing it physically. He's an amazing physical actor. I don't know when they started working together. I'm, I have to, I'd have to look up to see what their first collaboration was, because I, I don't think he was working with him... Um, in his early, you know, not definitely not in his early yeah. days, and I and I want to say it may not have been until Hellboy that they started working together because I don't know that I don't know that I saw him popping around um, Devil's Backbone, which was which was sort of before he went back into everything. Yeah, I don't I don't remember him either. The other actually, though, speaking of Doug Jones, the other interesting thing about his physicality as the Pale Man is it's a lot not entirely the same. There's definitely distinctive different distinctive uh, aspects to each, but it's a lot of the similar, not quite human jerkiness, as with the fawn, as though they're neither of them is quite used to being in in a physical form, or maybe in this in in a gravity that's close enough to our world. They both have the same awkward, creaky movements. That's a really good point. Yeah, they. And those are the two characters he plays in this, right? It's it's the fawn and the pale man. Those yeah. are who he's playing. Yeah. yeah, they they there's. There, there's something so otherworldly about the way he can move that, that, it, I, I'm, I'm always astounded by the work he does, and and it's, it's never should be understated the what he brings to Del Toro's monsters. He's he's probably the great monster performer of our time, and and Del Toro just keeps layering awful awful things on top of him to do <laughs> awful things with. 
Definitely, though. I mean, just the skin suit that he's wearing. The the flappy arm stuff is what really kind of freaks me out about when he moves around. Like, he's, like, swinging his arms around at fairies and stuff, and he just has these flaps of skin hanging underneath. And his, his neck. He has neck flaps. Yeah. I mean, you don't see that outside of, what, what turkeys and vultures and things? He's got neck flaps. It's... it's and what what I love about about the Pale Man as a as a creation is that Del Toro understands something about monsters, which is that in modern monsters, it's just like how much faster and stronger can we make them? To that, like that's the key to making them scary is to make them move really fast or to be super strong. And the Pale Man is very clumsy and not particularly fast in any way, but he's terrifying almost more so because of that him stumbling around is is really unsettling in a way that if he was running at her wouldn't be yeah it's it's not i i think part of it is is because she is one she's under deadline and two when that deadline runs out she's trapped with this thing that i mean she probably could outrun in any other situation but here and now she no no way she's she's stuck in a room with a thing that just bit the head off of you know, she's stuck in a room with evil fantasy Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> <laughs> she, 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 and the thing is, like, she, part of the, it's horror is that it traps you with this food. So by the time, by the time you realize that it's coming after her, or that she realized that it's coming after her, it's, it's basically too late at yeah. that point. And in fact, the only reason she gets away is because the fairies distract it for so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it, you, you get everything you ever wanted, but here, have, have this nightmare thing with it. And, and Del Toro starts doing this really excellent, awesome stuff with with camera work in this Pale Man scene. There's these two really awesome, awesome shots. Um, one when the Pale Man is first waking up, and we she's like eating, and we see the Pale Man out of focus over her shoulder. And as it wakes up, she um, it the focus changes to the Pale Man as it's moving, and then changes back to hers as she doesn't see it. And then there's another shot later after the fairies are finally distracting him that it pushes over her shoulder and the focus is on her face and it pushes over her shoulder to the pale man as she turns and then the focus turns onto it like as she's seeing it like the focus of the camera matches her realization that he's there and they're just two really phenomenal reveals of what's going on that increase the tension without much going on there's not like crazy edits or canted camera it's just it's just focus changes the perspective changes it's amazing it's it's part of it seems to be part of his style. He knows how to he knows what the essentials are and just, you know, just stick with that. The focus is on her because she's she's doing the action. Uh, but meanwhile, you can still if you you're like a, like before with the sound, your your mind registers that there's movement off in the distance, but it doesn't matter because she's eating the fruit. She's finally getting something luxurious. And then the, and then the focus push brings us over to the the slow realization that oh crap <laughs> this is why I was not supposed to be eating here now I see <laughs> uh, so um the 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 this the pale man I, I want to say about the the thing that I didn't get a chance to say was the 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 way the the particular hand motion of him holding his eyeballs over his head is one of those iconic images and might be the iconic image from this movie in terms of what like people tend to come out remembering the first time. So I, I always want to note that that I love that there's a monster that has eyes in a different part of its body but still holds them up to where his eyes should be because that's just really awful. There's something really it, awful about that. Especially how he has to contort his... Re- I mean, you can't see it, but I am actually trying to do that right now and that's actually a hard position to get in. <laughs> It is. It is. Um, and be- before we're talking about performances, I do. We we did not mention the really wonderful performance by Ivana Bacero. 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 She's amazing, and child actors are by and large not amazing. And I, from what I've read, I think Del Toro was this was his sort of his big fear was finding someone. And I think she was a little older than the character had been written. Just a tiny bit, the actress, but I think she was so good that he was just like, nope, it's yep. it's her, it's her. I, I think you're right. I think I remember hearing that, and she's she's just very good because she doesn't she doesn't play it for drama. There's no there's no horrible scream. There's just the the turning and and then oh oh what did I do? It, she's she's not understated to the point of being 
being completely emotionless, but she's not overstating it because she's so used to probably used to both fairy tales considering that she tells a couple and also just to to the grind of daily life in franco spain and so she's not exaggerating anything she's just playing it as as a real girl which for somebody who grew up not in franco spain has got to be pretty hard actually yeah and and in fact if you the the brilliance of that performance is the only emotion that really gets played a little bigger is her pleasure at eating the fruit the it, her face during that and in fact the the change from the the enjoyment of eating it to the annoyance at the fairies getting in her way is some really subtle and amazing work mm-hmm. she she's really good i actually should go back and see if she's done anything else since yeah it, it's, it's she's, she's a fantastic she's a fantastic actress just really great <laughs> But but yeah. Um, so let's see. So um, the the one thing, other thing I wanted to to note about um, about camera work really fast is that um, there's there's only a handful of like of tracking shots that we really ever get. Most of this is pretty steady camera work. But there's this awesome shot as she's running down the hall, and this is one of those things that that filmmakers keep an eye out for because it's a good way of establishing things. The camera is pushing along her back like it's following her she runs down the hallway and then just cuts to a reverse shot as she's running at the camera while the camera's still pulling back so the the frame of motion stays the same it's still moving in the same direction but we get to see her face and it's a subtle change but just really great um use of those of those two shots to give us that sense of motion at a time when nothing had been moving until then so a plus on just subtle subtle camera moves I'm glad you're taking this because I don't have the vocabulary to detail that. But but yeah, I mean, uh, and apart from that, you you get a good perspective switch from um, from uh, her her running. Also, another another good place for for camera work and for switching shots is when she's climbing out of the um, out of the trap door that she's made. Is is you get a, sh- a couple shots that echo. Uh, and maybe it's just me, but ec- the kicking of her legs echoing the, uh, and I think a similar angle to the shot where the pale man is eating the fairies. Yeah. So, oh, you know, a, you've got, yeah, you've yeah. got really good mirroring going on there. So, so uh, listeners, please um, bear with me for a second while I, I geek out for a second. Cause I, I want to, and, and I, I warned Kitty that I was going to do this cause there's, there's, a, a, an editing sequence in this scene that I, I think is worth taking a look at. So when you watch this scene, pay attention to the very end of this scene because it's a moment where Del Toro's kind of classic cinema technique, and I think also his 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 background in reading comic books really helps because he knows how to set up stories in like simple frames, like how to change the frames. And you could definitely you could turn this selection of shots into comic book panels, and it would tell the story just as well. But when when she gets up on the chair and she finally gets the patch open, um, they cut to her room of the hatch opening. And then we get a really close shot of the pale man walking over... Again, this is another one of those things of over his shoulder with her in the background and the, pushing the hatch open. And her legs, actually, this is the shot you were talking about, Kitty, with her legs dangling as, she, as he's approaching. And then we reverse back to a head-on shot of her coming through the hatch in her own room... And then cut to her hands trying to claw at purchase while it's going. And then back to the legs dangling. And then for the briefest of times, we get a couple of fast cuts as he's swinging his arms about before we get a shot of her crawling out of the hatch. And what's amazing is that it's it's never the same shot, but they're not ridiculously different in a way that make you get pulled out of the scene. It's just, it's each shot perfectly told to get the perspective of both the geography of where the pale man is in relation to her, what she's doing on both sides of the world, whether she's clawing up, whether her feet are still dangling. It's it's masterful, absolutely masterful editing. And I, I urge you, if you are interested in how to put together a tension scene, a moment of tension release, to take a look at what he's doing in that shot because it's it's just amazing work. Perfect, perfect work. Um, and thank you, Kitty, for uh, allowing me to babble on that for a second. It, as as long as you do it, I can only agree. I don't know the terminology. <laughs> I know from watching a lot of our TV shows that that the back and forth cuts are a, a horror staple. But having the timing to do it as well as Del Toro does it is is definitely something 
is a tricky thing to master. And you really have to know what you want when you're doing this. The 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 thing about film sets is that you're always moving so quickly that there's only so much random coverage you can get unless you want to burn all your budget. So to have that kind of selection of shots that are all very slightly different, I I'm not sure if he storyboards or if he just has it in his head, but he feels like a he feels like someone who at least does a lot of little storyboards to get himself ready for a scene because it's it's precise. It's so precise. I'm going to go with yes, he storyboards because some of them are actually in this book. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a quick plug here for Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. It's an expensive hardback, but it is a very, very, if you're interested in doing the kind of, uh, of art and film that he does, it is a very good resource. I, I'm the, just you talking about this book. I think I have to pick up a copy for myself it is, because it sounds amazing. It, it really is. It's 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 very rich. It's rich in interviews, but also rich in in actual pages from his notebook uh, that are copied here. And it, <laughs> and uh, okay, a lot of them are in English, but some of them are in Spanish. So you may may not necessarily. But there, but the. Um, Let's see. This I think all the Spanish is translated at, in the marginalia. So, um, if you don't speak Spanish, you're you're still fine. <laughs> I am going to make sure I pick that up, and I will throw a link to that book in the show notes so that you can easily find your way there and burn some money, or at least throw it on your wish list and beg someone that likes you that might pay money for a book for you. So, um, I I will probably be buying it tonight and regretting it when i look at my bank account tomorrow morning <laughs> um so so let's i guess we should um talk about the the kind of the scene in closing then um just to get any thoughts we didn't get and and overall feelings did we did we hit the the topics did we get get everything you wanted to talk about Karen? i think we did i think we um let's see most of uh we've got most of my notes in here um let's see oh the there is one thing that one thing that I'll briefly touch on is the the numbers symbology in here or symbolism, excuse me, uh, symbolism. But the, you've got the three fairies, the three tasks, the three locks. This is very much a staple in uh, fairy tales. But again, Del Toro doesn't really overuse it here. I mean, you've got the three tasks, obviously, for, for a good structure, but that's also good storytelling structure is a three-act uh, play, a three-act anything. And, and, and then just there's no real comment made. It's just here, have help. They happen to be three of them. And also actually noticing that the three fairies, they come in red, green, and blue, which aren't the primary colors that you would expect, but they're the primary light colors, which I think is interesting. And I wonder if that's a commentary on this being a, a, a focus more of light and dark in, in the actual light sense rather than light and dark in the good and evil sense. That is, that's an excellent observation. I hadn't noticed the color difference. It's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's fascinating. In there, I've been thinking about the the three thing in this, and you're right. And I love that he doesn't. Del Toro is great at bear. He's so much detail in scenes that he can go ahead and put a repeating motif like that in it, and it not feel overwhelming because there's so much else to look at, and and it take in that the the obvious themes mm-hmm. that he's putting in don't seem as in your face. I think no, they're just they're just gently nudged, kind of repeatedly, or does it just repeatedly put in front of you until you've lapped so much of it up that it's a part of of your thinking for the rest of the film yeah yeah it just it becomes a part of the overall the overall texture of it um this is this is really pan's labyrinth is just a really amazing film of his and and you know i i he's one of those filmmakers that he's such a favorite filmmaker of mine that i would i'm i'm hesitant to name a favorite film at all because i i probably love devil's backbone as much as this, even though it's a very, it's much more of a ghost story than it is fairy tale horror. But those are both great. And then on the Hollywood side, when you get his Pacific Rims and Hellboys and and Blade Two, to be honest, if for much as it's just some random sequel in a vampire hunting franchise, it's a just a phenomenal movie. Um, the he is one of the best filmmakers working right now, and I can't think of many filmmakers who could shift from a movie like this to a giant mecha movie like Pacific Rim and get them both right. Yeah, I, I can only agree. I think a lot of it is is that 
He takes a lot of the basic rules of storytelling, in particular visual, uh, visual auditory storytelling, and it just applies them to whatever whatever he's working on at the time. And and there's some things that if you, the the basic rules of if you want to create this mood, you do these things, and he finds a way to make them work. Whether it's mecha, whether it's vampires, whether it's horror, whether it's horror with a touch of comedy, um, fairy tales, whatever. He he he's. Amazing at getting into what makes the particular subgenre that he's working in click and gets at it. He, he understands why we like Mecha, the things we want to see out of a Mecha movie and a, mon- and a giant monster fighting giant Mecha movie and gives it to us. In the same way he understands, you know, we were, like we were talking about at the beginning of this, it, it takes an innate understanding of fairy tale storytelling to get at this right. And it's not just that the design of the movie is great and that it's well put together, but he understands the soul of the things that he's recreating and the motifs that he's using in a way that most filmmakers don't bother to get into. He has a, he has a great respect for, um, I don't want to say the classics. That's a little misleading. I think mostly the, the, the works of any particular genre, he has a great respect for the ones that stay, the ones that, that are repeatedly drawn on, the ones that people talk about, because clearly if people talk about them, there's something there that's sticking in your mind, and it seems like he does a great deal of, of work to to look at those. Like when, when like you were talking about, when he makes Pacific Rim, when he was making it, and he says, it is my responsibility to commit to screen the greatest monsters and robots that you have ever seen. And and he and he does. He takes that as a responsibility. And I think that's a, a level of seriousness and devotion and respect that you don't necessarily see in a lot of a, a lot of movie makers these days. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a dual um respect for the traditions of the storytelling mode that he's working in, while still understanding that he needs to tell a good story in whatever the modern storytelling form that he's using at that point. And a lot of times you either get people who ape blindly or people that update things without understanding what it is they're doing in the yeah. first place. And he walks a very difficult line of staying true to the traditions of something while still telling a damn good story. He's not he's not just repeating some things that he heard or some things that he hopes will get fans to of that genre to be excited about. He he integrates them into the overall story. So you get a scene like this, which is very horrifying, but very, very fairy tale-ish that still is a part, as you said, it's, it's such a part of Ophelia's journey. You know, this is, this is not just a scene dropped in. This is integral to the overall story. He, he's, I don't know. He's just a lot of what he talks about is, is, is pulling from, pulling from this story, pulling from that story. And it seems like what we have here with Pan's Labyrinth is, um, uh, let's see, not a love letter, but a, a, well, maybe that's what it is, is it's, it's, it's the affectionate result of all this brain soup that he's absorbed, uh, like you said, in his childhood. And, and now it's coming out, and, and now that he's an adult and he's had all, the, all his learnings of, of movie making and storytelling, it's being sifted out. So you get uh, you get a scene in a movie that's not just a part of somebody's journey that that's also it's a fairy it's a it's a fairy tale trope it's a part of somebody's journey it's also a part of character development of the just the essential nature of the character and how she changes she gathers experience and changes her mind on things and also just a stunning visual and, and auditory piece of work just uh, amazing amazing scene thank you so much picking it i was really excited to get to do this oh well it has definitely been my pleasure to to go back and revisit one of my favorites fantastic well kitty it's it's been wonderful having you on before we go would you like to tell the viewers where they can find you be it on twitter or your personal website uh well let's see you can find me uh as myself on kittyspace.org you can find me under murderboarding or unspooling fiction at murderboarding.blogspot.com you can also find me on twitter at mighty battle cat definitely check out all of those places and um i i am eric sipple as i said i am your host you can find me on twitter at salon that's s-a-a-l-o-n my personal website and blog is Salon Moyo, that's S-A-A 
L-O-N-M-U-Y-O.com, where you can find this and other episodes of Making the Scene, which you should check out. And I hope that you will all return next week or two weeks from now when we return with our next movie. But feel free to soak in the joy of this wonderful horror film for the next bit of time, because I do believe you should be listening to this sometime near Halloween. So enjoy your Halloween, and thank you all for joining us, and I will return to you with another movie soon. <laughs>